Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Council. I recently sat down with Darren Zanovich, President and CEO of Mason Minerals Partners 2, who's returning to the podcast after initially coming on back in March 2020. After exits of Haymaker Minerals in 2018 and Mason Minerals Partners 1 in December 2020, Darren's become the first ever executive to successfully exit two private equity-backed portfolios in the Minerals and Royalties space. Now, with a new partnership with NGP circa May 2021, Darren and his team are back at it with Mason Minerals Partners 2, who have already gotten to work closing a large acquisition in the Louisiana side of the Haynesville. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Darren had to say. Darren, good morning. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been probably a year, year and a half since you were last on, so it's good to have you back. Lots to talk about. Great. Great to be back on, Tim, and uh, good to see you. No, absolutely. So we're not going to do the the personal background and the walkthrough since you've already been on, but what it would be good to do is a recap of the minerals entities you've helped build. You're the only one in the space that can own the title of two successful private equity exits in the mineral space. So it'd be good to set some context there, just bring everyone up to speed on kind of time horizon and when you started and exited, what the portfolios look like, what the strategy was like at the time. Let's Let's give a timestamp as well. So, uh, you know, is it circa 2010, 15, 18? It it matters because the space is evolving. And then we'll get into Mesa Minerals too and what you guys are up to now. So over to you. Let's start with a recap of the Haymaker story. Perfect. Yeah. So I was part of the original Haymaker executive management team back in 2013. You know, if you recall, we were one of the first PE-backed mineral and royalty teams in the space at the time. You know, after Viper's IPO, you know, we wanted to scale really quickly. We went out and bought the Cornerstone assets. Then we went and bought Chesapeake's assets, which was really all their lower 48 shale mineral and royalty assets. Ultimately, that morphed into being a very large and diversified portfolio. And, you know, we tried the IPO route for, you know, a year and a half. Market never opened. Ultimately, we exited that to Kimball Royalty Partners in 2018 for $445 million, a little over two and a half times return for our investors. So you guys were early mover advantage, right? So you build up a, a sizable portfolio. I mean, $445 million is is a large exit. It's a large number in the mineral space. And so you kind of built what's, what Kimball's footprint is, what Blackstone's footprint is, which is diversified in a lot of different areas. As you, as you start to uh, work with Quantum and, and form the Mesa Minerals story, Mesa Minerals 1, that is, the market's changed a little bit, diversified and scattered and everything is although it can still work, is, is challenge when you're looking for an end buyer and an exit down the road. So what was going through your mind on, okay, we made a good return for our investors, Haymakers is a success, now I'm going to do it again, but I got to be in cadence with the market. What, what were those early conversations like with Quantum? I think it was, it was more along the lines of the opportunity. You know, Quantum had an opportunity with one of their EMP companies, Rockcliffe, that was pad drilling four rigs, really in full development mode. I had a relationship with Alan Smith over at Rockcliffe. And so we just kind of, you know, talked about how we could work together on a partnership. And that's really kind of how, how that started. It, at the time, it was contrarian. You know, most of our competitors and peers were, were focused in the Permian and the Anadarko Basin. And you know, we saw a line of sight to get to build a large cash flow 
profile and, and a portfolio in the Haynesville. We saw great rock. And, and really, that, that's really how we started Mesa One. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So, Mesa Minerals One. So, you started Q3 2018. It's a line of sight strategy. It's ground game driven and it's hyper focused on the Texas side of the Haynesville, not just the Haynesville itself, but on the Texas side. So, you scaled that really quickly. Uh, I remember when you were on last year, you talked about having the acquisition of a large family portfolio and then building around that and leveraging the pad drilling of Rockcliffe really help you guys scale extremely quickly. I mean, you look at the Haymaker story, it was close to five years to build that up and exit it. And, you know, Mesa Minerals, you guys built it up and exit better part of a year and a half, right? Two years. So much quicker turnaround time there. I think talk about that, that family office portfolio uh, you acquired because Mesa Minerals too has started out with a big acquisition as well. So there's a, there's a pattern there. Talk about the importance of getting a footprint and then being able to build around that. Yeah, that's a good point. We, you know, we believe having that footprint is, is very important. And you know, Mesa One, we had that footprint with the large family that we bought on the East Texas side. And that really gave us a, a nice cash flow component to build around and, and a, a starting block. And, and so when Mesa Two, that was one of the important things we wanted to do. When we think about a ground game strategy just from scratch, you really need to buy something of scale to kind of kickstart that. And, and we kind of view with, with Mesa 2, our ground game strategy was always planned to be more of a complementary strategy to the larger strategy of buying the larger acquisition to kind of get things started. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to let you know that the Minerals and Royalties Council will be hosting our inaugural Minerals and Royalties Awards Dinner in Houston on October 13th in which we'll be honoring Darren Zanovich, President and CEO of Mesa Minerals Partners 2 as our Minerals Executive of the Year. If you're interested in participating in this dinner by hosting a table of 10 for your colleagues and clients and partners, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com. Thanks, now let's jump back into the episode. So is it because investors want distributions up front? Is it, you know, a data edge or kind of leveraging a a position to then do bolt-ons? Is it getting cash flow up front so that you can take some development risk, you know, on the back end? Why is starting with a, a footprint important? Uh, it could be a combination of those things, but I think for the investors listening that are looking at backing teams or, or partnering with teams, I think it's fairly obvious to say, okay, the yield, the cash flow investors, the yield hungry investors are going to want something PDP heavy up front. But the thing I hear the most is it's great to be funding GNA at a cash flow instead of drawing down equity for that, right? So what are the factors that go into wanting that upfront? You know, I, I think it's definitely it's the cash flow, it's the yield, it's the ability to have the size to put debt on it and to put hedges on it. It's the ability to get your name out in the basin as kind of the buyer of choice. And, you know, when you think about a ground game, you know, micro, you know, acquisition ground game, it's really buying smaller acquisitions that are mostly inventory that don't have PDP on it. So having that large PDP component allows you to then, you know, complement it with a ground game that's that's more inventory heavy. So now let's dial it back. I mean, it's great. The seat you're in, 2020 was a success, but God damn it, it was so much uncertainty. It was a wild ride. I remember when you had come on the podcast, it's probably February of last year when we recorded it. You know, this was right before everything changed. And you guys were, you had Jeffries engaged, you're doing a lot of market mapping, trying to figure out 
who are the new end buyers out there? And I, uh, I don't want to speak for them, but it, they did a fantastic job, right? In conversations we've had and, and you were getting ready to go to the market. You were starting to get the right development profile, the right amount of cash. Boom, COVID happens, oil price war at the same time. And just the uncertainty alone, it was like, whoa, whoa we got to pull it back. And walk me through March to the point where you said, it makes sense to try to to go back to market. What did that look like? You know, I, you know, we debated it back and forth quite a bit, and you know, I think when we were thinking about kind of the pros and cons, it was it was definitely like you know, COVID, everything shut down. You have the oil price war, so you've got you know the public royalty companies really on the sidelines with balance sheet issues with that as your potential buyer. We did a lot of I'd say pre-marketing you know, getting out there and and really talking to the potential buyer groups ahead of time. So we felt good about those conversations and that those groups were going to be there. And then, you know, when we looked at, you know, what else was on the market right then, you know, COVID and the price war really pulled everything off the market in the Permian, and it really pulled everything off the market, oil or gas in the royalty space. So we looked at it and we said, look, we're going to be the only thing on the market for anybody to look at. We had the large cash flow component. I think it was, you know, our next 12 months is 25 to 30 million, you know, a year in cash flow on the assets. So we had the big cash flow component that that we felt like the buyers wanted. And really, you know, at that at that point in time, we thought, what do we have to lose? You know, and, and so, you know, we put it out there and and we had really great response. Well, the other thing too, the associated gas coming out of the Permian probably helped you guys, right? So in a weird way, there was some silver lining with the oil price war for a pure gas portfolio. For a portfolio of your size, you had mentioned the importance of starting with a large footprint. On the flip side, you exiting, someone's going to want to lock in hedges. And so gas futures last year, there was, there was some activity and some movement on the AD front for gas assets for that reason, because you, you could lock in hedges and protect your downside risk. In oil, it was just it was too uncertain that you couldn't do any of that. And so, one note's interesting. Your comments around we could be the only game in town. You know, Nick Varrell, when I did a podcast with him, same type of thinking. The market went backwards a little bit when they were getting ready to go to market, and he's like, you know what? Let's prep and get our portfolio ready for sale, so that if the market rebounds quickly, everyone's on their heels and we're ready to go, and we'll be the only game in town. And that was a recipe for success for him, and, and clearly for you guys as well. So that that's fantastic. So talk stats real quick, because what I want to do is trying to draw comparisons to where the market's at and the dynamics and everything. So 445 million, two and a half X plus return for your investors for Haymaker, Mason Minerals, let's talk size, you know, return to your investors, multiples. You had mentioned 25 to 30 million cash flow. What was the NRA? Count percentage developed, all that gets us an idea of the buyer universe, right? Yeah, perfect. So the Mesa One assets, we had over 470 transactions that we did to make up that portfolio. 22,000 net royalty acres. Average NRI across the portfolio was was about 1.3 percent. So solid NRIs. When you think about net wells, you know around 13 net wells of PDP. When, when you think about WIPs and permits, around two net wells of WIPs and permits. So lots of line of sight near term that you can point to. And then over 640 inventory locations. Our next 12 months cash flow was forecasted around 25 to 30 million as well. So it was a perfect package in the time. We kind of had a bunch of pad drilling that had happened to kind of get our cash flow up to a certain point. It was really peaking and kind of plateauing where it was going to be flat for the next three years. So we thought that was the right time in the in the assets lifetime to sell it, as well as you know, we were at around $3 gas. And, and like you said, we didn't see a lot 
on the market that was going to be competing and, and had really good feedback from some potential buyers, despite not having, call it the public guys, healthy to play the process. Yeah, I think the one challenge with the publics is they didn't have the cash really. And so anything would you do a deal on, it would have been an equity play. You know, Kimball with Springbok was, was an equity play, right? In early part of 2020. And, you know, you, you're going to want a cash exit, ideally. So Franco's public, but they're not a public minerals company and gold was killing it. And so they were cash rich. And so that was yep. just a great marriage, right? And they've, everyone knows that name because they've, they've done so much over the years, but it was just another, another flag in the ground for them in, in the Haynesville. Right. And, and the process itself was, was very competitive. I mean, we had over 30 groups that signed NDAs. We had over 25 management presentations. We ultimately had 10 bids and three bids, I would say that were constructive. The remainder of the bids, I'd say, were people kind of, you know, bottom fishing for, you know, not wanting to pay for inventory. So ultimately, successful process in the end. We, you know, we sold the asset for 135 million. It was uh, around a two and a half times return for our investors. So yeah, very successful exit all in all. What is your word of advice to groups out there that are starting to consider an exit, maybe do those pre-market conversations, test the market for lack of better words. They're at the point where, because I think the sweet spot, Darren, is like 50 to 60% developed with a lot of line of sight. That's where that's just the sweet spot where you're gonna get the premiums you want, the mix of you know the the right PV valuation on the PDP, but they can underwrite the upside so you're not giving it away. When you're at 20, 30, 40% developed, it's kind of like, is it too early? Do you think it's smart because there is a bit of momentum in the market right now? Oil's up, gas is in a good place to carve out some of the undeveloped stuff that's not there yet and sell the subset of the portfolio. You're a buyer now, right? So I mean maybe you want to look at everything, but just putting your seller's hat on, let's just say you ran that process. Does it make sense to leave 20% of the portfolio there because you're not getting the right metrics on it, sell the more developed stuff. And then, you know, maybe, maybe quantum just houses it and lets it hard, mature, or maybe in a couple of years it gets developed and it gets sold again in terms of splitting portfolios. I'm sure you reviewed all these options. What's the takeaway? What's the recommendation for groups out there? You, you know, I think end buyers need that inventory piece. That's that's the upside piece they need. So I, I really don't think carving it out was ever really an option that we looked at. It's all about timing. And I think for us, you know, like you said, we're, I think, 18 months in. We put this up for sale and, you, you know, we didn't have to sell. There's other groups that, you know, get five or six years deep on a private equity commitment and, you know, their back's against the wall and they have to sell. So I think for us, we, we, carving anything off wasn't an option because we really didn't have to sell. We just thought it was the right time in the market and we had gotten the right feedback really from the pre-marketing. So if there's any advice I'd have, I'd say, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and, and set up the meetings with who you think your, your potential buyers are. And don't be afraid to sit down with them and just you know roll out a map and, and walk through the asset with them and, and get their thoughts and answer their questions ahead of engaging it with a bank. I think that's one of the things we did a really good job of on the Mesa One asset. And we, we, we felt very comfortable when we started talking to those different groups through Jeffries that they were going to be there because we had had those conversations with them prior. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, 
and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris@nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Lastly, I'd like to take a moment to thank Enveris, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enveris' mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enveris' platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enveris, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enveris.com or email businessdevelopment at enveris.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Yeah, the other thing that's interesting too, I mean, you mentioned timing uh, in the private equity space. The pref rate is always the thing you're, you're battling, right, on, on the timing side. What I found interesting over the last year, having conversations with folks and getting feedback on processes and everything, is not all cash flow buyers, not all PDP buyers are the same. Different kinds of cash flow investors want different types of profile of PDP. And what I'm referring to is flush, flush production, some want just to buy the end of the well. And so if you are not developed enough to go to market and really get the valuation you want, you might need to sit and wait. Maybe the market fluctuates a little bit in terms of pricing, and then you got to wait a little bit longer for that right time. But then maybe the, the profile of your cash flow changes to where you're not going to get the same premiums. And it's you're getting that cash flow in terms of distributions, but then time is working against you. And so it just becomes a math problem to figure out opportunity costs of waiting and and just weighing all your options, right? So it's uh, when, when it all comes together, where the timing seemed great for you guys uh, and it culminated in a great exit, that's that, that that's a win-win, but it, it doesn't always work out that cleanly, right? And it's, that's right. you know, in fairness to you guys, to say it worked out that cleanly, I mean, 2020, there was so much volatility. So, I mean, kudos to you guys getting it across the line for sure. So December, th- you know, was it 29th, right? 2020, Franco buys Mesa 1. Now it's time to you know keep the band together and, and do it again. But again, like Mesa One, you've innovated on strategy. Paint the picture on the market and how you've evolved from you know the ground game focus, right? And, and building something in, in one basin. What did the last six months look like internally when you guys were at the whiteboard? Yeah, so we I think we really thought about what you know what do we want to do next. We definitely had had the ability to keep the band together and add a couple members to the band as well. And thought about, you know, where do we want to go next? And I, I think the way we've seen the mineral and royalty space evolve over the last, call it 24 months, is really you have the ground game, which right now is uber competitive. Whether you're in the Permian, you're in the Eagleford, the Haynesville's 
uber competitive right now, even more so than four months ago when we were in the basin. So, you know, we, we kind of saw that coming and, and the way we kind of look at the world now is, is there's more competition on the ground than there is as an end buyer. So we've kind of morphed and we wanted, you know, as part of our new strategy, we want, we really wanted to become the end buyer of choice because we think there's a better ARB now on that side of the fence. So that was really the primary focus on our strategy. You know, I think when we think about what, what type of assets we wanted to go after, it was, you know, I'd say 25 to 40% PDP, you know, 10% or greater yield, 15 million a year cash flow or larger. That was kind of the target. We were really based in agnostic as far as oil or gas you know, agnostic, whether it's an override carve off or, or just a mineral and royalty play. And that was really our focus. And, you know, what we started doing was just, we, we started signing NDAs and started looking at deals. You know, that was literally the end of December when we closed in January, we'd already signed, I think five NDAs and we're looking at larger deals that kind of fit that criteria. And, you know, around that time we were, we were talking to different private equity providers and kind of pitching them on what we wanted to do. We talked about raising our own fund, uh, which you and I have had several conversations about. The market was tough. I mean, getting out there to raise your own fund would have been a tough environment in, in the first quarter of this year. So, you know, we ultimately ended up working a deal with NGP. You know, I've known those guys for a long time. David Hayes and I have been friends for, I think we've thought about 10 or 15 years the other day. We've known each other, known Patrick McWilliams over there. Great guys. We, you know, we talked to them about our strategy, what we wanted to do. They really liked the idea. Of the strategy. They really liked the idea of what that strategy could look like with their NGP royalty fund that they put together. And so we ended up going down the path and working a deal with those guys. You know, literally a week or two after we signed up with them, you know, they kind of said, hey, what are you guys looking at right now? You got some big deals on the radar. And, you know, this this Haynesville deal was kind of at the at the top of our list. We really liked the basin. Again, the Haynesville to us, second most horizontal active rigs in the country behind the Permian. Entry cost is about a third of getting into the Permian. You've got the operators in there are primarily, that is their only base and that's their only play. They're all pad drilling with multiple rigs. They're all very well capitalized, all very well hedged. To us, it remains one of our favorite basins in the country because of those factors. And so this deal was right in the middle of the core of the Haynesville. On the Louisiana side, right? So on the Louisiana side, that's right. How much familiarity did you have with the Louisiana side? I mean, you were obviously in Harrison Panola on the Texas side with Mesa One. Is the rock similar? I know from a from a land perspective, it's quite a different story, right? When you're looking at aggregating, but in terms of understanding the profile of the wells and everything, when you're looking at buying a a maturing asset at scale, pretty good apples to apples comparison. Yeah, I'd say I'd say the rocks comparable on the from the Hainesville standpoint. But you know what's really exciting on in the North Louisiana core is you really have two zones. You you've got the Hainesville and then you've got the mid Bozier zone. And both of those are performing very well as standalone zones. And and so really I think I think the way we think about North Louisiana, I think you got better rock, you got two zones. This footprint that that we acquired has five core operators on it that are all pad drilling, and this is really their core focus area where they're all, that's the only area that they have to deploy capital. So you don't have any other bases that are competing for capital with these guys. And the guys that put it together did a really good job. And just to give you an idea, one of the things that really attracted to, to this position, you know, we looked at the existing rigs in the, in the base and 46 rigs. You had, you know, today there's nine rigs on the position. You know, it's still roughly 20% of all the rigs in the basin are drilling on our position today. I think when bids were due, it was, it was even higher. I think it was 18 rigs we're on the position when bids were due. So, you know, when you look at the last 12 months on this position, you know, it, it averaged over 12 rigs, you know, a month on, on this position. So, 
lots of rig activity. I think one of the other stats that really jumped out to us when we started looking at the metrics was, was the permits. So we do take all the permits in the Haynesville play. 50% of those permits are on this acreage footprint right now today. So when you think about near-term line of sight to development and cash flow and getting comfortable with inventory on a portfolio, this is one of the better portfolios that we've seen. No, it's it's exciting. And I'd love to, to dig into the asset a little more, but I, I just want to rewind it a little bit. So a couple of things, you know, the end of the year, you said you started looking at deal flow right away. So one, I just want to point that out. Folks who are going out to raise money, it's so important to have assets lined up. And it's really hard to time raising money around having a deal ring fence because you know the, the deal could be gone or it could take time with due diligence with the investor. And so I think it's very telling that you guys started right away. And you know, given the, the momentum you had in the market and the credibility, you could bring in that money and, and kind of time it like you did with, with NGP on this Louisiana Haynesville asset. But you know, one thing to point out on the direct fundraising, it takes time, right, Darren? I mean, we've had conversations. I would argue no one's really better positioned than you to go out and raise a direct fund. But do you want to wait six to 12 to 18 months to raise a fund of scale? You, you're going to afford some flexibility that you might not otherwise have if you went with a private equity sponsor. But are you going to miss out on three, four deals and a frothy market and just that window of opportunity? What's the trade-off? So I think you guys ultimately went with, hey, there's deals and there's a time to to transact and build a portfolio and, and we could still make great returns. And so that's why you guys went with NGP. But let's talk about innovation within the private equity space, because there's a lot of criticism we've talked about before. We've done webinars on you know the cost of capital, private equity. It's not a match. The clock is ticking against you and the prep rate and yada, yada, yada. So private equity 100% has a role to play. They're, they're filling the gap between publics and, and certain cash flow end buyers and then the aggregators that don't have the scale of private equity. But you know all the, all the criticisms against traditional private equity money are valid, even though guys like yourself have successfully exited and everything. So NGP has gone out, NGP Royalty Partners, they've raised a specialized fund, which you know, has a differentiated cost of capital. It has a, a longer holding period, and it's a better fit to write mature assets more aggressively and compete on these larger scale things. And that's, I think, where it makes total sense for you to go with them versus wait, you know, taking the opportunity cost risk of raising a fund directly and then missing out on opportunity. So give a little background there on the relationship with NGP and why it was appealing and kind of what they're up to and, and how they've innovated within the mineral space. Yeah. So, you know, the relationship with NGP is great. Their royalty fund is a perfect fit for what we want to do with our call it larger acquisition strategy, where we're going after these larger cash flowing assets that fits perfect for their royalty fund. The other strategy that we kind of have, you know, after we buy that large acquisition is we want to put our ground game on top of that. And, in, you know, in this case, we have 15,000 acres. We want to put our ground game on top of this and put another 7,000 to 10,000 acres on top of this. Where that comes in from, from the NGP standpoint is their fund 12. So most of that stuff we're going to be buying on the ground is going to be inventory, less developed. So the great thing about the relationship we have with NGP is, is we have the ability to go pull out of either bucket. So if we want to go buy this inventory, you know, not very mature type of assets on the ground, we can use their fund 12. You know, if we find some stuff on the ground that's more mature, PDP duck heavy, we can pull out of the royalty fund to buy that. So it really gives us two a tool chest with two different buckets of capital. 
So I think that was one of the most appealing things for us was that, you know, we had that ability with NGPs, two different costs of capital to really achieve what we wanted to do, both on the larger acquisition, but then with a the kind of complementary ground game on top of that. What's your rebuttal to, I mean, you've already said the ground game is very competitive. What's your rebuttal to, unless there's some sort of data edge or strategic edge, private equity money can't win on the ground, or you're going to spin your tires. So you guys had a, a line of sight with Rockcliffe. That's what I'm referring to. Or a non-op portfolio, and you have all the data from the non-ops to you know, to kind of lead you. Is it the brand of Mesa that you're leveraging that helps, you know, in, in legacy relationships? What is your, your, you know, kind of rebuttal to that or just saying we will successfully bolt on around our position through a ground game without the line of sight of a rock cliff, for instance? Yeah, I think, I think where we kind of looked at it, like, you know, you asked about, you know, when we went to the drawing board in, you know, in December after we sold you know, Mesa One, I think that's one of the things we talked about. It's just really, can you successfully, you know, take a new bucket of capital and just go on the ground and build something out from scratch and make private equity returns in today's market on the ground? And and I think the answer that we kind of came to was was we don't believe you can. I think it'd be it, it's very difficult with with typical private equity terms and money. We definitely have differentiated terms with that with with NGP through the royalty fund. And that relationship, but just if taking typical private equity money and trying to make a 25% return and flipping out of that in, in three to five years on a straight ground game, I think it's very difficult. I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons we took a look at the market and where the competition was. And again, there's more competition now on the ground than there is on the end buyer, whether that's an end buyer, a $50 million package or $150 million package, you know, the larger you get, the less competition you have. And so that's that's kind of where we wanted to shift our strategy. We also think we know how to evaluate and buy and onboard and manage these larger acquisitions as well. And, and so we kind of wanted to play to that strength as well. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Lastly, I'd like to take a moment to thank Enveris, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enveris' mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enveris' platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enveris, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, 
then please visit www.edverse.com or email businessdevelopment at edverse.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. You know, I just think it's so awesome to see how the private equity space is has morphed. I mean, when you when you look at 2015 to 16, it was positioning your your players by basin and having basin specialists. Really, all kind of the same ground game, or you know, leveraging relationships, doing a, a little bit of everything, uh, buying some some brokered packages, whatever. But now, what it looks like, and I, I call it kind of the three pronged approach of private equity, is you have your your ground game with an edge, the line of sights, the some sort of angle to where you can underwrite more aggressively and compete. You have your PDP vehicles. So for NGP, that's elk range, right? And then you have the elephant hunters. It's so funny in the conversations I've had with you and others, and this is a big initiative of the platform I have is let's get the word out. Let's educate investors. Let's get new end buyers in the space. These, you know, the mystical uh, pensions and insurance companies, they'll come, right? But it's it's a grind. And you know this, you did the market mapping with Jefferies. And so private equities responded by saying, the publics are still not mature. That market still needs to grow. And you've created the end buyers and with the innovative structures. And so yeah, you guys are the you know, the quote unquote elephant hunter, in my words, of of NGP's portfolio, which is something that others are starting to look to do. And and I think now as deals start to come to market, a lot of opportunity. Let's jump back in now, the Louisiana assets. So yeah, so you guys, May 26th, you get a $150 million commitment from NGP. The asset that you bought, I know the value wasn't disclosed, it was sizable, but it wasn't all drawing down that equity commitment. Over half of it was supported through co-investments, right? So that that was oversubscribed, shows a lot of interest in in the transaction, in, in the space from the LPs. Expand upon that and give any color you can, because that that was really interesting and, and I think a great footnote on the success of the deal you just closed. Great. So you know, I think when we when we started talking to NGP about you know how we were going to finance the acquisition. You know, they they mentioned that they would like to put you know a small amount of debt on it, but then also look to bring in some of their direct LPs into a, like a co-invest on the acquisition. Yeah, you know, I think initially we thought you know maybe twenty or thirty million. We had we really had thirty days after we signed the PSA to kind of herd the cats to to get the co-invest signed up. And so you know, I, I think there was definitely we knew there was going to be some interest, but didn't know whether we could get you know those type of LPs herded and. And all signed up within that 30-day period. And so, you know, we were pleasantly surprised to say the least when we came in oversubscribed almost to the tune of double. And to the point where we really brought in the co-invest, ended up funding half of the deal. I think, you know, talking to all those LPs, there's definitely an appetite out there for yield, for cash flow. And and the big thing, you know, that we were selling them on on this deal was the cash flow distributions that we're going to be able to make. You know, I think, you know, when you think about a deal like this, you know, 30 million a year, it's the next 12 months cash flow. And we're going to be able to distribute cash flow literally day one to the to these investors. You know, when you think about the yield on this asset today that we acquired, the yield's 25% today at, at today's strip pricing. If you think about the yield over the next five years, it's going to average over 20% over the next five years. If you look at it over the next 10 years, it's going to be close to 20% as well. So I'd say the big the biggest you know, issue we had with with getting that the LPs in on the co-invest was was them believing the yield. You know, I think a lot of them were like, God, if it's half that, you know, this is a great investment. And and so I think 
you know, the market's turning. You know, I think people have been talking about how, how the investors are kind of steering away from oil and gas. We we saw the the opposite when when it came to going out and talking to all these LPs on on the co-invest on this opportunity. Yeah, and you you know those distributions that are locked in. You said this was a hundred percent hedged, right, on the PDP component. So I think that's one thing. As I've seen the talks around scale and acquiring larger packages, locking in downside protection is is super important. And that's that's something that you guys are going to enjoy, whereas a smaller shop cannot. And that's just economies of scale. And so that's that's super important. Do you think looking at futures prices and and trying to is it locking in the hedges simultaneous to the close or do you think you start to play the markets a little bit and maybe you know, ride the strip i'm making it up six months and then you feel like okay now we want to lock it in what, what do you think is needed in terms of getting the investors comfortable and you know weighing all the the different factors yeah i think our, our strategy from day one was always to buy this large cash flowing type of asset just like this asset and to lock in hedges on the majority of the pdp it just so happened, you know, we underwrote this deal at, I think it was 260, 270 gas price strip at the time when we underwrote it. You know, as you've seen gas run the last three or four weeks, I mean, we're at like 370 plus on the front end of the strip. So I think because the prices ran the way they have, uh, I mean, they get accelerated as hedging. We were always planning on hedging all these volumes. That was always the strategy. The strategy is really to distribute this cash flow to these investors by this type of asset like like we bought with this Hainesville asset that, you know, if you look at the cash flow profile, likely pays out in four or five years. Along the way, you're distributing cash flow, 20% plus yield to your investors along the way, which they like. And then ultimately, uh, you're at a point in, in, call it four to five years where you can where, where you can exit this asset yourself. No, awesome. I wonder, do you think there's a role for a lot of sophistication on the hedging side, dynamic hedging, or is it just really at a macro level, looking at prices and just locking it in at, at the right times. Do you think, you know, bringing that expertise in-house and really trying to manipulate the portfolio with pricing the market to give that extra bump, is that something you, th- you think the space goes towards? Kind of like what you see on the EMP side? I think you'll see more of that. I mean, I think for us, I mean, we, we don't try to get real cute with with the hedges. I mean, we do swaps and you know, we've we talked about doing collars, but, you know, I, I think for us locking in the prices, you know, where we're able to lock these in right now it is, is way ahead of the game from where we underwrote this deal. And so, you know, we, we thought, look, let's take that. You know, one, one of the things we really liked about this asset itself was the downside protection that it afforded us. And this is a pretty cool stat. When you think about this asset, the PDP, the ducks, the whips, and the permits on this asset today, right there, we, we already get to a 1.1 times ROI with what we can see on the asset today. So, so talk about, you know, buying an asset right with the downside protection, you know, the, the downside protection on this deal is already there. We're getting, you know, we already feel like we've got line of sight to, you know, over a one times return on this, just with what we see on the asset today. That's great. Well, excellent. Well, what's the next steps? Are you guys a Hainesville shop again, or is the next logical play oil or is it just opportunistic? I mean, going back to your EMP days, you built out the Marcellus office for uh, Talisman. You had a lot of experience in the Eagleford and in the Marcellus in the Hainesville. Now, you know, just with your recent experience, I'm sure you've looked all over with Haymaker. Are there certain basins you like? Is it really just size and scale and the right development profile is really the leading indicators? You rattled off a couple of buying criteria early in the episode with, I think, 
minimum 15 million in cash flow and et cetera, et cetera. But why don't you walk through what Mason Minerals 2 is, is looking at going forward? Because you have more dry powder and you're just getting started, right? Sure. So our, our strategy going forward would be you know, a complimentary ground game in Haynesville. Like, like we mentioned, we would put another seven to 10,000 acres on top of this position that we just acquired. So that's ongoing right now. We're buying on the ground right now and deploying capital into that strategy. The other piece of our strategy going forward is going to be continuing to look at these large cash flowing assets. And I rattled off the, the criteria earlier, but, you know, over 15 million a year cash flow, 10% yield or greater, really kind of playing in that call of 50 to $150 million price range. Again, basin agnostic on that, you know, as far as basins, we'd stay away from. I I think we'd probably stay away from Colorado. You know, I think we'd buy Appalachia at the right price, but, you know, you know I think looking at, you know, Permian, Eagleford, Haynesville is still one of our favorite basins. Really basin agnostic. It, it's probably more on the asset and the, and the profile of the asset. Where do you guys fall on uh, Anadarko and New Mexico side of the Permian? I think on the Anadarko, I, I think there's tremendous opportunity now in the Anadarko at, to enter now. You know, if, if you think that there's not going to be activity going on in the Anadarko basin over the next five or 10 years, I think, you know, I think you're crazy. I mean, it's it's got great rock and so, you know, I think I think now is a better time to try to enter there. You know, I, I think the, the federal lands and New Mexico stuff has kind of calmed down a bit. I, I think there's not a lot of entry points in there, but I, I think it'd be a great place to be as well. well very good. Well, uh, Darren, really great having you on. Lots, lots happening. So I know I've been trying to get you on for a while and you're like, no, 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 I got something else. We'll wait until that happens. Wait until that happens. <laughs> so uh, it was two or three announcements and I'm glad we can have you on to share the success. Congrats to, to the whole team. And, and I know this is only beginning for, for the second iteration of Mesa. So I appreciate again, you coming on. We're, we're honored and excited to give you our Minerals Exec of the Year Award at our event and dinner in October. So can't wait to celebrate the whole team at that as well. Great, Tim. Thanks again for all you do for the mineral and royalty space as well. No, no, you bet. I'm having fun doing it. So thanks, Darren. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties focused executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.